You never get a second chance to make a first impression. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but first impressions, they only happen once. Now, you can try to make a different impression on other people, but once you meet someone and speak to them, an impression is made and you have to go from there, for better or worse. I wonder what kind of impression Jesus made when he began his ministry. Today's sermon passage, we reach a point in Jesus' life where he begins that public ministry. And for the people there, or the people reading Mark, hearing it for the first time in their church, this would have given them an impression about Jesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, which you can find on page 836 of the Bibles provided. Uh, And if you're new to the Bible, uh, I'll just mention briefly... There are large bold numbers, and we mentioned those first. Those are chapter numbers, so chapter 1. And then if we mention a second number, like verse 12, the verse numbers are the small numbers you'll see throughout the text. I'd also like to say, if you don't have a Bible uh, and, and you're here today and you want one, feel free to take one of the black ones underneath the seats as, as our gift to you. We would be happy for you to have that to read at home. Uh, just let uh, one of us know so we can replace it. Well, each week here at FBC, we take a section of Scripture and uh, just go through it and try to understand it. Uh, This kind of teaching or preaching from the Bible is what we call expositional or expository, because rather than wanting to use the Bible to preach our own opinions, uh, we want to read for ourselves what the Bible teaches and have it shape our own worldview and our lives. So generally, as we seek to understand what the Bible says... Uh, the main idea of what's happening in the text is usually going to be the main idea of the sermon that week. This week, uh, just to remind you, since it's only our second week in the Gospel of Mark, a few bits of context to keep in mind about the author. He goes by Mark, uh, also sometimes known as John Mark, in Acts 12, verse 12. He's a Jewish Christian and the cousin of a man named Barnabas, a traveling companion of Paul. Uh, We know that Mark's mother owned a home in Antioch, and when Peter was put in prison and miraculously released, he went to John Mark's mother's house where Christians were praying for him. Uh, We also know that right before Paul and Barnabas left on their first missionary journey, Mark went with them, but he had left them and gone back to Jerusalem at a certain point. Paul seems to have viewed this negatively, and so um, when they depart for their second missionary journey... Barnabas wants to bring his cousin Mark, and uh, there arises a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. You can read about this in Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. Uh, It says that there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. They split ways over it. So Barnabas took Mark, and then Paul took Silas. And then we don't hear a whole lot uh, about Mark after that. But at some point, it seems Paul forgave him for what he did. We know this because in his letter to the Colossians, Paul exhorts them to welcome Mark in Colossians 4, verse 11. And while in prison in Rome, after being deserted by everyone except for Luke, Paul says, he asks Timothy to bring Mark because he says he's useful for him in the ministry. He also tells him to bring his cloak and his books, especially the parchments. Bring Mark and my cloak because I'm cold. Well, perhaps it was in Rome that Mark came to see Paul 
And then after that, stayed there as Peter's right-hand man. Peter, uh, tradition says, was the pastor of the church in Rome. And Peter himself refers to Mark as a son in uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 13. So Mark is referred to by the early church fathers as Peter's interpreter, uh, traveling with Peter at times and would have been exposed to much of his preaching and teaching. And there are signs throughout the book that uh, Mark had a close relationship with Peter, one of them being Peter's prominence in the book. Uh, he seems to be one of the main characters, and you know he's not always painted in a positive light. I think that that shows some of Peter's humility in retelling some of his own stories of his time with Jesus. Uh, as I mentioned, Mark writes in a vivid, dramatic style that draws attention to the story itself, the person of Jesus. There are very few comments by Mark as a narrator throughout the gospel. But the gospel's primary focus is the person and the work of Christ. Who Jesus is and what he did cannot be separated. His identity is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Mark tells us in verse 1 of his book. Mark, as a Jew, uh, appears to help more Hellenistic or Greek readers understand who Jesus as the Jewish Messiah is. He explains Aramaic terms along the way throughout the book, uh, connects things to the Old Testament, fits them to the context of Rome, which is where uh, he likely wrote this letter. Christians then would have been facing great persecution, and uh, not all of them would have known Jesus personally or witnessed things. So for them, receiving this testimony about the life of Jesus would have reminded them about their Savior that they follow amidst persecution. The picture Mark paints is that Jesus is the ruler over all the earth, the Son of Man, and the suffering servant come as a substitute for God's people and a ransom for their sins. Following this theme of identity, you'll notice Mark takes special note uh, along the way of the responses of people to him, from the crowds, from the disciples, the Pharisees. Some believed in him, others didn't. Many were confused. Even his disciples didn't really understand Jesus until Peter confessed him as the Christ in chapter 8. But they didn't quite fully understand him until after his resurrection. Either way, one last emphasis for you to know about the book as a whole is that Mark seems to draw attention to the way Jesus' popularity just explodes throughout his ministry. He seems to just be escaping from one crowd to another. That's because God appointed the exact time and location of Jesus' betrayal and death. So you'll see Jesus, after healing someone or casting out a demon, instruct them not to tell anyone. Seems a little counterproductive for the Messiah coming to rule his people. Well, we're going to continue this theme of identity and arrival this week. Last week we looked at the first 11 verses of Mark, in which he announces the good news of Jesus, predicted by the prophets Isaiah and Malachi and proclaimed by John the Baptist, and then even declared by God himself as he's baptized. As he comes up from the waters of baptism, the Spirit descends on him and declares him as the Son of God. The main point was that Jesus has finally come, and that's still good news for us today. Well, today we're going to pick up immediately after that in verse 12 through 20. Let's read that together now. 
the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The main idea of this section is that Jesus brings the kingdom and Jesus grows the kingdom. So we should tell the world. Jesus brings the kingdom and Jesus grows the kingdom. So we tell the world. The text can easily be divided into these three paragraphs that you see in the ESV translation, and I just have a point for each paragraph in today's sermon. So point one is Jesus' first trial. That's verses 12 and 13. Point two is Jesus' first sermon in 14 and 15. And then finally, Jesus' first disciples in verses 16 through 20. So let's just begin with point one, Jesus' first trial, verses 12 and 13. Uh, They could have been lumped into the baptism last week. Uh, since the word immediately shows up there, uh, it's, just, it's like as if immediately the Spirit descends on him. The Spirit then drives him out into the wilderness, further into the wilderness, that is. And um, that word drove is a strong word. It's actually the word used for cast out that would be used later when Jesus casts out a demon. It just shows God's initiative in directing Jesus where he needs him to go. Mark doesn't tell us much about this temptation. In fact, he only gives us two verses. Compare that to 11 verses in Matthew and 13 in Luke. But even in these two verses, there's four important details I want to look at. First is where this temptation takes place. It's in the wilderness. Significant location for Israel to become a people. It's where they wandered around. It's a place of no civilization or government. It's not really a livable area. Uh, It's the place where the people, after being miraculously saved from Egypt, wandered around for 40 years and grumbled about the Lord's provision. It's a place away from home for Israel, a place of trial and a place of failure. Well, that's the first thing. The second thing is how long this temptation lasts. 40 days. Our Old Testament radars should just be going off the charts at this point. Forty days and nights the Lord sent rain to blot out every living thing from the face of the earth. Genesis 7, verse 4. Forty days Moses spent on Sinai meeting with God in Exodus 24. Forty days again by Moses after interceding for the people after they made a golden calf. Forty days spent spying on the land in Numbers 13. And then forty years in the wilderness as judgment for their faithlessness, one year for each day spying. Forty days given to Nineveh 
to repent before their destruction. So you get the idea. It's a significant portion of time in which something big happens. It's a history-changing moment, sometimes a time of testing, usually preceding either judgment or deliverance. That's what's going on here as well. It's a crucial moment in the life of Jesus and for history as a whole. Third observation is what or who was tempting Jesus. Well, here it's Satan, directed by the Spirit to face greater temptation than Adam or Israel faced, but it would be the same adversary, the serpent, the deceiver of men, meets Jesus in the desert, the prince of the power of the air, the one who prowls like a lion seeking to devour men. And then finally, who else is with Jesus? Uh, Marx notes that wild animals and angels are there with him. Uh, The angels were ministering to him. Uh, That's what angels do. We know that from Matthew and Luke's account. But it's a good reminder that Jesus commands a heavenly host of the Lord. It's not that they came to fight the battle for Jesus, but to minister minister to him in a weakened state. Uh, I think of a boxer like Muhammad Ali in between rounds, retreats to his corner, and he has a team of people surrounding him, and one is rubbing his shoulders, and the other one's giving him water to drink, the other one's wiping the sweat off of his brow. It's this idea, I think, of ministering to him in the desert after not eating anything for 40 days. And we could take comfort knowing the power of God and his great armies work for the good of those who will inherit salvation. The wild animals has been, for me, the most interesting detail of this uh, section of verses. There's a debate about what exactly it is Mark is trying to imply here. That word for wild animals probably wasn't referring to desert squirrels and desert bunnies. Uh, It could be translated as wild beasts, implying animals in the area like leopards, bears, wild boars, jackals. To me, it seems like more signals that a new creation is coming. The prophet Isaiah, who Mark quotes earlier in the chapter says about the new heavens and earth, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. We also know that Adam communed with animals peaceably before falling to temptation. Yet here Jesus withstands temptation and then communes with wild beasts. Either way, Whatever take you have on it, Jesus does something that no other human has ever done in history. He's resisted temptation. Mark's also showing Christ's humanity. It's not as though this temptation was easy for him. If it was, he wouldn't have needed angels to come and minister to him. Uh, He was in a weakened state. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And the point there is not that he faces the exact same kind of temptation that you and I face today. The point is that he knows how weak our flesh is. He was pushed much further than we could ever be. So he understands us. No matter the way temptation particularly manifests to you in your life, he knows our needs and can sympathize with us. Well, that's point one, Jesus' first trial. Let's now think about Jesus' first sermon. What did he do when he came back out of the wilderness? 
Verses 14 and 15 say, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That little detail about John being arrested, uh, it's interesting that Mark doesn't make a bigger deal out of it because John seemed to have an incredible ministry with people coming from all over Judea and Jerusalem. But what it signals is that John's ministry ending signals Jesus' ministry beginning. Again, Mark's very intentional to show that all the pieces are falling in place for Jesus' ministry. And then verse 15 has Jesus' sermon. You may not have noticed it, but this is the very first time Jesus speaks in Mark's gospel. So far, he was spoken for by Isaiah, Malachi, John, and even God the Father. But what does Jesus have to say for himself? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What did he mean by that? The kingdom of God meant the reign of God, his kingship. He was announcing the good news that he himself has come. The kingdom of God that you have been waiting for all these years, it's here because I am here. Over the past three years, uh, I've had an event blocked out on my calendar in the first two weeks of September every year. And uh, the, the name of that event is just titled, Go on Vacation. Uh, some of you may know that I worked at a phone store previously. And the reason I had that date blocked out to go on vacation was because it was what we called the period of waiting. It was two weeks before the next iPhone came out. So stores tended to be much slower. Or people who did come in would find out that the iPhone was just about to come out and they would say, well, I'll just wait until that one comes out. The period of waiting. Uh, That's what it is for Israel too. But instead of two weeks, it was over 400 years. The time is fulfilled. It's complete, satisfied. The word used for time is not so much speaking of an instant, but an era. It's the age of waiting for the Messiah. And the Messiah has come. And with the Messiah, the kingdom of God. He's the savior of the world who would turn history in a new direction. One preacher said that Jesus is like the hinge by which the door of history turns into the age of forgiveness. But that wasn't all Jesus had to say in his sermon. Uh, His announcement about the kingdom of God coming demanded a response from those listening. They weren't just things for people to hear. He calls people to do something. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, repent, we often think, is just confessing our sins, saying we are sorry. Uh, And that is true. That's part of it. But repent is not simply to be sorry for your sins. It's to take action. The word means to turn or to return. The idea here involves actively turning away from a lifestyle and changing direction into a new one. Turning away from sin and moving instead towards God. To repent is to deny yourself. It's just a fact that if you're following someone else, you're putting them before you. So Jesus calls people to follow him and calls us to deny ourselves and to put him first as Lord. To believe similarly means uh, not just to ascribe to a particular worldview or a certain knowledge uh, of facts, set of truths, 
But to believe is to have faith. It's to rely on, to trust in. It requires active dependence upon something, not just agreement with something. That faith or belief or trust, it leads to action. There are a lot of people in the world who think that Jesus existed. Uh, There are a lot of people who even think he might have died for our sins. But they don't believe in him in this way. They don't live their lives in a way that depends on Jesus actively. One pastor said it really well. He said, being a citizen of Christ's kingdom is not a matter of just living a kingdom life or following Jesus' example or living like Jesus lived. The fact is, a person can be a self-professed Jesus follower or a kingdom life liver and still be outside of the kingdom. You can live like Jesus lived all you want, but unless you've come to the crucified king in repentance and faith, relying on him alone as the perfect sacrifice for your sins, your only hope for salvation, you're neither a Christian nor a citizen of the kingdom. This coming of Jesus, as I mentioned, is a turning point in history, bringing the long-awaited King of God and Kingdom of God to earth, calling sinners everywhere to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus, that He is God, that He can save us from sins, that we can depend on Him. Friend, maybe this idea of belief has never really made sense to you. The world wants you to think that Christians believe in Jesus the same way kids believe in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. But that's not at all what the Christian faith is like. You know, an elf, the Santa's sleigh, has a belief meter I don't know if that's what he actually calls it in the movie, but there's this meter that gauges the, the, the level of Christmas cheer. And uh, Santa pouts and just says, there's just no Christmas spirit this year. But as more people believe in in Christmas and Santa Claus, it goes up and the sleigh is able to fly away. That's not what it's like to believe in Jesus. What it looks like in real life is trusting in the Word of God. It looks like setting aside Sunday for worship and for fellowship with other believers. It looks like ordering your life around the church instead of the church around your life. It looks like having intentional conversation with other believers, the intention of encouraging them from the Word. It looks like celebrating joys with them and bearing each other's burdens and sorrows. For some, it looks even like leaving friends and family and moving to a faraway place where people have never heard the name of Jesus. It looks like forgiving others the way you have been forgiven. Christ's message is not for you to do better. It's that you need Him. You need Jesus to turn from your sin and to follow Him. Point three. Jesus' first disciples. Jesus continues preaching. He doesn't stop. He's actively preaching as He goes along the Sea of Galilee. And then He sees a few fishermen, uh, two different sets of brothers. To both of them, Jesus says, follow me, And immediately they go to him. Jesus preaches to call men to do this, and then he goes and does it. They drop everything to follow him in an instant, which just shows the kind of authority that he went about teaching. And we'll hear more about that through the rest of the book. But what else is significant about this event? A few things. The Sea of Galilee uh, would have been a major area for commerce. Uh, It was just the only kind of 
area of water between a number of neighboring countries. And so fish would have been a major contribution to buying and trading and selling. These men were fishermen by trade, meaning their job was to fish, their livelihood. It wasn't just a hobby like people fish today. Fishing like these men were wasn't just uh, casting a rod and catching one individual fish at a time. It usually involved getting a large net, casting it over uh, the water, and it would kind of open up as a circle. People still do this today. It's called cast net fishing. And um, I discovered that uh, it's satisfying to watch. So um, those are the titles of some YouTube videos if you look it up. Uh, Satisfying net casts. And there's weights along the edge of the net so that when it lands in the water, the weights go down around the fish. They pull a line and it, and it closes the gap and then they draw the fish out of the water. This was physical labor. It was difficult. This was like blue-collar work of the day. So these men that Jesus is calling for, they're not exactly the political elite of Galilee. They were simple men. They weren't laborers. Uh, Sorry, they weren't powerful lawyers or military generals or doctors, aristocrats. They were just fishermen, likely uneducated. They would have grown up in the family business, and the assumption was that they would take over the family business at some point in time, because that's what you did. So Jesus wasn't just calling these men to go on a walk with him beside the sea. He wasn't calling them for a, a, a lunch with him, so that they could then return to their lives. And these men simply didn't just give up a dead-end job. They gave up their whole lives to follow Jesus. Everything they had. In some sense, they even walked away from their families. To walk away from the family business would have meant that no one was there to care for their parents when they aged. It also would have meant walking away from their birthrights. This business must have been thriving since Mark mentions that there were hired servants. That implies that there needs to be leadership, responsibility for the business. And they walked away from that too. Well, what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't just invite them to him. He commands them. That word, when he says, follow me, it's an imperative. So he's giving them an order as king and they're responding. Well, similarly, for some today, following Jesus requires giving up everything. In Muslim countries, it's common for uh, Christian converts to receive death threats, even from family members, when they decide to get baptized. For others, it can be career suicide, depending on uh, the kind of business that they're in. Today, especially, a biblical view of marriage and gender can be catastrophic. It can mean giving up particular relationships in your life. Raising your children in a certain way. But friend, if you're considering following Jesus, but you don't want to because there's something getting in the way, I'm here to tell you that whatever that thing is that's preventing you from following Jesus is not worth it. Jesus is worth it. It can't compare to the salvation gained in Christ. That's why Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what are the things that are holding you back? Whatever it is, it won't bring you true joy. It won't bring satisfaction. 
It'll only leave you wanting. Listen to Jesus' call to follow him. Make today the day that you call him Lord of your life. Maybe you want to trust in Jesus, but you're afraid that he won't accept someone like you because you don't deserve it or you don't feel worthy. Friend, every Christian in the world has felt that way at some point. And you want to know why? Every Christian has felt that way because it's true. We are not worthy. Uh, We are sinners. We do deserve wrath. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't seek out the people that had their lives together. He didn't seek out the religiously informed experts of the day. He spent his time with fishermen, with tax collectors, with sinners. Today he calls all people still to repent and to believe in him. Brothers and sisters, have you ever considered the amazing things that God can do with your life? At that time, Jesus called them. These men were just fishermen. But we know that they would go on to do amazing things. Simon, uh, his other name is Peter. He would eventually go on to be the pastor of the church in Rome. Tradition says that he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die in the same way as his Savior. John likely would go on and pastor the church of Ephesus. So friends, don't discount what God might do with your life. Don't discount the things that we do here at FBC, encouraging one another in the faith, meeting simple needs for one another on that church app. Don't discount the importance of voting in new members and voting them out. Every time we do, we exercise the keys of the kingdom and proclaim to the world a right profession, what a true confessor looks like. Speaking of doing amazing things with ordinary people, there's one more thing I want you to see in this text. It's what Jesus says he will do with Simon and Andrew. Look again at verse 17. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So the disciples would eventually become heralds of the gospel. In fact, all Christians are commanded by God to make disciples of all nations. And I always thought that You know, to be a fisher of men just basically meant to be a Jesus recruiter. And it is that. But think for another moment about that image of the net going over the water, engulfing fish and being drawn up into the boat. Jesus turns the phrase to tell them in a way that they're going to be fishers of men. It's not that they'll just be pulling individuals. Water in the Old Testament had poetic symbolism for chaos and judgment and darkness. So this idea of fishing for people is not simply calling them to follow Jesus, but it's rescuing them from outer darkness and drawing them into the safety of Christ. Like a lifeguard throwing a rescue tube to someone who's drowning, Christians warn people about the riptide of their sin and call them to safety, to repent and to believe in the gospel, is to be saved of the wrath to come. Because Jesus offers complete forgiveness to those who forgive, or for those who follow him. All of these verses that we've covered in Mark could be considered an introduction to the person of Jesus and his ministry. Giving us categories for how to think about him as the son of God, as the new Adam, as the better Israel, as one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. 
as the one who brings about the age of forgiveness, not with more laws or more sacrificial rules, but with his very person. Christianity is not about social reform or building a Christian nation. It's about calling people to Jesus. It's about turning from sin and trusting in Christ. It's about kingship, God's rule and his reign. We're called to fish for people. Are you a fisher of men or of women? As we continue to consider Jesus' life in the book, I'd encourage you to read through the whole book uh, in preparation for these sermons so that uh, you would be more encouraged in these things. And as you go along the way, observe the responses to Jesus, the impression he makes. And then ask yourself what your own impression of the man Jesus is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning as the Lord of history, as the one who ordained your Son to come at the proper time to call men to himself. Lord, we thank you that Jesus resisted temptation in the wilderness. We thank you that he did what no other man could ever do. Lord, most of all, we thank you for his death and resurrection by which our sins are atoned for. Lord, we thank you that he's a good king, that we have the assurance of our salvation because of his resurrection. Father, help us to be a church that takes God's word seriously, that fishes to rescue men and women from outer darkness. Lord, we ask that you would do these things powerfully in FBC. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.